Three of the most important things we have are relationships, time, and money. One of the greatest challenges with these things are that they're limited. So we better be wise. But they're not really ours. We're not owners, just stewards. What we've been given belongs to someone else, the God of the universe. Since he's the infinite source, really, our relationships, time, and money are unlimited. So we better be generous. If everything we have is limited, how do we live wisely? If everything we have is unlimited, how do we live generously? Join Vintage Church for this four-week series to learn the secret. It's just a phase. Maybe you've thought that before. Maybe you've said that before. Maybe you've just simply thought, I hope that this season of life that I'm in is just a phase. There's a reality that life comes to us in phases. And phases are really just distinct, unique opportunities that God has provided us to leverage for our future growth. And maybe a better way to think about this, especially as we think about relationships and we think about stewardship, is God has given us people, relationships, to steward, and those people are in phases, and so we have an opportunity, whatever kind of relationship that we are in, to steward those people through those different phases of life so that they can leverage this season of life that they're in for future unique growth opportunities. What we've been talking about, as Pastor Weaver shared the last uh, week into the next few weeks, is this idea of limited. I've shared with you that all of us, I think, can agree that our resources seem limited, meaning that we only have so much of stuff. And if they're limited, that means we have to think about our resources wisely. But at the same time, if God, as we talked about last week, is the creator, then he is the owner. And if he is the creator and owner, then that means that our resources are unlimited. So if they're unlimited, then that means how do we live in such a way that we live generously? So we have limited resources, we need to live wisely, we have unlimited resources at the same time, and we need to live generously. Last week what we did is we kind of laid a foundation. We looked at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, and we talked about how in order to understand stewardship, you have to have a right understanding of who God is and who you are. And then you can begin to understand how God has called us, all of us, to steward resources. A steward is simply someone who has been entrusted with something, and those resources that you've been entrusted with are not yours. So you don't use those resources for your best interest, but rather you use those resources for the best interest of who? The owner, who is God. 
So what we're going to do today is we're going to jump in and we're going to begin to unpack stewardship and some of the things that we steward. We're going to be talking about relationships. Every single one of us have relationships. If you are in this room, that means you are around people, right? So you might have a, a wife, a husband, a daughter, a son, a neighbor, a roommate, a coworker, a friend, or just a complete stranger. God has placed us in community, in relationships, and because he's given us relationships, that means we have been called to steward those relationships. So here's kind of the big idea that I want you to wrap your mind around this morning. God has given us relationships to steward for his glory. Why? Because they belong to him and our good. God has given us relationships to steward for his glory and our good. We're going to stay in the Old Testament this week. So if you have your finger on Genesis, where we were last week, just flip over four more books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. Here's what it says. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. Moses is talking to the people of Israel that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Here's where we're going to hone in this morning, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What I think Moses provides us here is answers to three particular questions. Three questions that are related and connected and help us understand more of what it means to steward and to steward our relationships. Here's the first question that I want us to look at. Where's the starting point? Go back and look at verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6. It begins with this command. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I'm going to teach you some Hebrew this morning. Are you ready? Here's the word, Shema. Everybody say it with me. On three. One, two, three. Shema. That is a Hebrew word. It is a command, and it simply means this. Hear. This passage in Deuteronomy 6 is called, in Judaism, the Shema. And it is, if you will, the confession of Jews. 
So when they confess, what they confess is that, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So what they are doing is they're beginning everything that they understand and believe about God with this confession of who God is. This is the foundation upon which they are building their lives. I think this matters to you and I. This is what we talked about last week in Genesis chapter 1. Anything we steward, including our relationships, have to begin on a solid foundation. And what more important, more solid of a foundation than the very identity of who? God. So we begin with the Shema, and what we quickly see as we begin to describe who God is, is that relationships begin with God. I mean, that's really part of what Deuteronomy 6 is going to talk about. But before it gets to Moses telling the parents how to steward their kids, it begins with what? A confession of who God is. So what Moses wants us to understand is that any relationship, it doesn't matter what the relationship is, it begins with God. God is the foundation upon which we are building. And what Moses wants us to understand about God is this, our God is one. He's singular. Now, when Moses says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, what does he mean when he says that God is one? There's two things. Number one, there is a unity. What do I mean by that? When theologians talk about the unity of God, they use this uh, concept called divine simplicity. I'm going to nerd out theologically for you for like five minutes, okay? So just bear with me, and then we'll get back to the regularly scheduled program. Our God is one, meaning he has unity, which means there is divine simplicity in God, the theologian Herman Bovink describes simplicity like this. He says, each attribute of God is identical with God's being. Simply put, he is what he possesses, okay? He is what he possesses. Scott Swain, a contemporary theologian, says this. He says, God is identical with the perfections we attribute to him. God is light. God is is love. God is truth. God is the life. Who God is and what God is are identical. So what I mean by that, to say that God is simple, is to simply say that God does not have parts. Okay, when we think about parts, what we tend to think about are like body parts, right? Well, number one, God isn't a physical being, right? He's a spiritual being. So he can't have arms and legs and heart and lungs and those sorts of things. He doesn't have those kind of parts. But in the same way, you can't think about God like this. Well, God is like one-fourth love and another-fourth wisdom and another-fourth righteousness and another-fourth holiness. And those 25%, four 25% equal what? There's just a little bit of math for you at the start of school. 100%. So that's God. No, no, no. What we're saying is that if God is love, he is fully love. There's not a part of God, again, God doesn't have parts, but just to conceptualize, that isn't loving. He is love, therefore he is what? 
love. He's simple in that sense. He is a unity. But in the same light, what Moses is getting at is not just that God is a unity, but that God is unique. There's a uniqueness to God. Again, look at what Herman Bobbing says. God's simplicity is the end result of ascribing to God all the perfections of creatures to the ultimate divine degree. So take a look out in our world and see something in cre creation where you're like, that's incredible. And we can say that God has that attribute, but he doesn't just have that attribute like you and I have that attribute. He has it to the ultimate degree, the divine degree. You find somebody who has intelligence and you're like, man, it is incredible that that person is so intelligent. And then you look at God and you're like, no, 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 he's not that intelligent. He is so far above and beyond that intelligent. You look at someone who is beautiful and you're like, wow, they are beautiful. And then we begin to comprehend God and like, no, 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 he's not beautiful like that person. He is be beautiful beyond degree. What Moses is getting at is that that is who our God is. Thomas Aquinas, the medieval theologian, said it like this, the divine essence is self-determined and distinct from everything else in that nothing can be added to it. Why is that important? Because whatever, what all these theologians are getting at is this reality, is that God is in a class of his own, that there's no one like our God, which is why he is one. Moses begins any sort of discussion about relationships with this reality. This is who God is. God is one. He is a unity and he is unique. But what scripture also teaches us is this reality that our God is relational. So yes, God is one, and the way that we talk about his oneness is that he is one in essence or one in being. But we also know in scripture that God is not just one, but God is what? Three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And as we think about that reality, what we think about is this fact that God is in relation with himself. What, again, the way Scott Swain describes this is he says this, each divine person is equally and identically the one true and living God. The only real distinction between the persons are their relations to each other. So God the Father is who? God. God the Son is who? God. God the Holy Spirit is who? God. But God the Father is not God the Son. God the Son is not God the Holy Spirit. Do you see where I'm going with this? They're distinct persons. And what makes them distinct is how they relate to one another. In theological language, we talk about this in that God is unbegotten. There was never a moment that he wasn't. And at the same time, the, the Son is, we, we read about this in the New Testament, he is the begotten Son, right? Right? And in the New Testament, it talks about the Holy Spirit being breathed out by the Father through the Son. Those are called their relations, which means the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, while all equally in holy God, they are three distinct persons that are in relationship with one another. Why does all that matter? Because that is the foundation for understanding relationships. 
and how God himself is, in fact, relational. So God is relational, and what we learn quickly in Scripture is that we were created to be in relationship with God. In fact, if you just go back to Deuteronomy 6, what's the confession? Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God. He is our God, which means we have a what? Relationship with God. So God is a relational God and that he's in relationship with himself. He's in relationship with us. But guess what? God has created us to be in relationship with who? One another. In the very beginning, God created Adam. He breathed life into Adam and Adam came into being. And God begins to parade all of the animals before Adam. And he's like, man, God, these animals are incredible. I'm gonna name that one elephant. And I'm gonna name that one aardvark. And I'm gonna name that one dog. And I'm gonna name that one cat. I don't know why we had to have cats, but you know, <laughs> God did it and Adam named it and that's how it went, right? But Adam gets done naming all of these creatures. And God recognizes that there's something missing. That Adam's like, all of these creatures are awesome, but there's not a counterpart to me. And in Genesis 2.18, this is what we read. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. The first time in all of creation that God looked upon his creation and didn't call it good. It's not good that the man should be alone. So I will make a helper fit for him. Now, that text is specifically about marriage. Right, That God would create a, a helper, a wife for Adam. But I think what that one verse teaches us is that we are relational people. That God created us to be in relationship with other people. He created husbands and wives, sons and daughters, friends, roommates, neighbors, co-workers, strangers. Because he wants us to be in relationship with other people. What all of that means is what? God has entrusted us with relationships. And another word for entrust is what? Stewardship. God has created us to steward people and steward relationships. So, what then does God want for our relationships? Second question what's the purpose? Look at Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. That is what the Israelites were commanded to do. In being in relationship with God, they were to love him. Jesus in the New Testament takes that command and says, let me not only affirm that that's what we are called to do, but let me add to it. And then he quotes Leviticus 19. Listen to what he says. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, that's Jesus, he, Jesus answered well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Remember, in Judaism, there was like 613 different commandments. And Jesus answered, the most important is what? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. 
So he quotes directly the Shema, and then he adds to it, and he says the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment. Jesus says, listen, I can summarize all of the Old Testament for you. It is simply this, love God and love people. If you want to know what God requires of you, that is it. Why? Because I think Jesus is getting at this. Relationships are about love. Whether it's a relationship with God, whether it's a relationship with your spouse, your child, your friend, your neighbor, relationships are about what? Love. And if you need proof of that, God gave us proof. John 3.16, for God so loved. Who? The world. Who's the world? You, me, everyone. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son. See, God demonstrated. He didn't just tell us that he loves us. He said, I'm going to demonstrate for you what love looks like. So you understand not just what love looks like, but that you understand that I love you. So I'm going to send my son, Jesus, to earth, and he's going to become incarnate, meaning he is going to put on flesh, and he's going to become human, and he's going to live a sinless life, and he's going to go to the cross, not for his sin, because he is sinless, but for your sin, because what you have done in sinning is reject my love. That's all sin is, by the way. To sin is just to simply reject God and his love for us. So we reject God's love, but Jesus demonstrates his love. He dies on the cross that we could have his love and experience his love. And then he rises from the grave to give us life to live in that love. And the scriptures say that we have to respond to that gospel message. In order to experience God's love, you have to accept it, right? That's true for anybody's love. Like when I, when I proposed to Rachel, she could have rejected my love. So I don't want to marry you. Praise God that didn't happen, right? Wow, how different would life be? She accepted my love. And in the same way, we have to accept God's love, which means first we have to repent. We have to say, God, I'm sorry that I've rejected you and your love. And then we need to, in faith, turn to Jesus and the cross and recognize that that is a demonstration of God's love. And we have to believe that God loves us, loves us enough that Jesus died for us. And then we have to confess that love. That love is being buried with Jesus and resurrecting out of that water in baptism. That's how we receive God's love. God loves us. And our love for God then is fueled by what? Love for others. Jesus tells us to love God and love people. We love people, but hear me out. We love them differently. As I started to think about this, I thought about C.S. Lewis and his book, The Four Loves. I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but the book is literally four chapters, maybe five with an introduction, where he talks about four different kinds of love. And he says, all love begins with this kind of idea of affection. And he said, you can have affection for like a pet. He said, but that affection for someone probably will grow. And then he talks about the second love, the, the love of friendship, 
where this begins to have a deeper love. And then maybe friendship, if it's with a significant other, a spouse, turns into what's, what the Greeks called an eros love, which is like a sexual love or a, a passionate love. But he said love can't end there. And then he closes the whole book talking about the idea of charity, which is theological love or agape love, which is self-sacrificial love. And here's what I want you to think about how we've been called to love people, but just love them differently. I think we've been called to love people differently in two ways, in kind and in degree. Right? You're not going to love everybody, or let me say it this way, you shouldn't love everybody with an eros kind of love. Right? I think our culture might need to hear that actually. You know, I'm not going to be a friend to everybody. So the, the, the kind of love with which I love you is going to be different than the kind of love with which I love my wife and my child or children. I have two children, right? Uh, I remind Rachel this all the time. Our dog, she's like, you love that dog. No, I do not love the dog. I like the dog. I love you. I love Gabe and I love Emmeline. Very different, right? There's a different kind of love, but there's also a different degree of love. The most important people, listen to me, this is so important, believe this, the most important people that you will love is your spouse and your children. The greatest influence that you can make on anybody, on anybody, is your spouse and your children, okay? Your social media influencer, I don't care how many followers you have, the greatest influence you will make is on your spouse and your children. The degree with which I love Rachel and my kids will determine the maximum impact of my life. And that is true for you as well. So there is a difference in degree with which we can love people and which we will love people. But our love has a direction. I want you to hear this. Our love, when we steward relationships, our love has a direction. Our love should lead others to God's love. That's the direction that we're pointing people. All people, by the way. It doesn't matter who they are. And here's the reality. I think everybody is searching for God's love. They might not be able to name it that. They might be looking in all the different places for that. But what they're ultimately looking for is God's love. If someone in their life has failed them, has not given them the kind of love that they need, the reason that they are hurt is because what they've been looking for all along is God's love. In fact, listen to how Blase Pascal says this, 17th century mathematician and Christian. Listen to how he describes this. This was 400 years ago, but he could have wrote this today. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace this he tries in vain to fill with everything around him seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in this that are though none can help since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object in other words by God himself. That's what people are looking for. 
The way St. Augustine talked about it is like, listen, you choose the things that you love, but where we mess things up is we have disordered loves. That we were created by God to love him. And it's not that what we love is necessarily bad. God created you to love creation. Creation is a good thing. The problem is we take the created thing and place it above the creator. And what we do is we disorder our loves. And what God says is, listen, if you will rightly order your loves, if you will love me and then love creation, if you will love me first and then love people, if you will love me and love everything else second, you'll begin to understand the kind of satisfaction and fulfillment that you and I, we were created for. That's, I think, part of what it means to lead people to God's love. Why wouldn't we point people to the thing that they're looking for? It's like, hey, somebody's looking for a gas station and say, hey, go down the road and there's an Applebee's. Well, I don't want to eat. I need gas. So anytime there's anything someone's looking for, it's like, listen, I'm looking for this. I'm looking for meaning and value and satisfaction. You're like, let me tell you about the God who loves you. Because you know that that is where all of those things are found. This is why we evangelize. We tell people about Jesus because what people are looking for is ultimately found in Jesus. This is why we disciple the people that we love and care about because we know that if they learn to follow God and love him above all other things and love people second, they will find the kind of meaning and value that they were created for. I love how Tim Keller describes this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, and he's talking about marriage, but I think it's true for every relationship. When we begin to see people as the way Keller describes it, I think we understand what it means to point people to God's love. He says this, it's to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you, and it excites me. I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. Do we see our spouse, our kids, our friends, our roommates, our neighbors, our coworkers, our strangers in that light? To say, I get a glimpse of what God is doing in you, and I know God's called me to be a part of it. Let me walk alongside you. Let me point you to God's love. But none of this happens by accident, which leads to the third question, how's the plan? Verses six through nine in Deuteronomy six. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What I think Moses is getting at is that relationships require intentionality. Doesn't matter what the relationship is. It requires intentionality. If you are going to steward the people that God has entrusted you with, it's not going to happen by accident. You have to be intentional. 
And I think what Moses is getting at is that there's two types of intentionality. Number one, there's an intentional effort. One of the things that he tells Israel to do is that you need to put this on your heart. Put the law of God on your heart. Put the love of God on your heart. And that intentional effort is this. It's to meditate to the point that the law or the love of God is internalized. Meaning you can't separate you from God's love. You can't separate you from God's word. Rachel just celebrated a birthday and I bought her a cold brew system. It's not that fancy. I thought it was going to be a lot more fancier than it is. But I started to like make the coffee for her, right? So we start with the coffee beans and we coarse grind the coffee beans and then you put them in the filter and then you pour water on the coffee beans, right? Or on the, the ground coffee beans. And you're supposed to let the, the, the coffee and the water sit for up to 24 hours. And when you're done, right, you take the, the beans out and you throw those away and you have cold brew coffee. And if you look at that water and that coffee together, there is no way after it has sat for 24 hours to separate the water and the coffee anymore. They're, they're now one. They're infused. And that is what Moses is getting at when he says that you are to put these things on your heart. Meaning if you are meditating on God's law and God's love enough, there is no way to separate that from yourself. One way to think about this is how Carrie Newhoff and Reggie Joyner have described it. They say this, if you want it to be in them, it needs to be in you. In them, any relationship. If you want it to be in your spouse, it's got to be in you first. If you want it to be in your kids, it's got to be in you first. If you want it to be in your friend, it's got to be in you first. You meditate on it. You put it in you. And then I think Moses gets at the totality of effort. Do you notice how he describes this? He says, when you sit, sitting is what? It's inactivity. When you walk, it's what? Activity. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You are getting it in you so you can get it in them. And then Moses talks about it teaching diligently. The Christian Standard Bible translates this to repeat them to your children. The NIV says to impress them on your children. I love how the message paraphrases this. Get them inside of you and then get them inside of your children. And the root word is this idea of piercing. And it came to be used to this idea of like sharpening a blade. So that if you are being intentional in your effort, you are piercing the person that you are loving with the word of God and the love of God to, in such a way that it is getting inside of them. That is intentional effort. This is why we talk about things like Bible reading and prayer. I've shared with you what we do with my kids, the New City Catechism, where we talk about a question every week or the Parent Q app that we've shared with you, or even V Group, or discipleship meetings, or just being intentional with questions to ask your spouse or your friend, like, hey, what is God teaching you right now? What are you reading right now? It's intentional. We have to have intentional effort. But I think Moses moves beyond intentional effort to also talk about intentional time. Again, look at what he says. He says, not just when you sit or when you walk, but when you lie down. When do we lie down? 
I know some of us like a mid-afternoon lie down, right? But when we lie down, we sleep. It's at night. When we rise, it's when? It's in the morning. It's the totality of our time. We've talked about this with the parent QAB, but one of the things that Orange encourages with parents is to be intentional with your time. And it talks about these different times that you have with your kids. Things like, what do you do in drive time? Whether you're commuting to school or commuting to home, what do you do at mealtime, at dinner? What kind of conversations? How are you being intentional with your kids? At, at bedtime, what kind of conversations are you having with your kids, right? All that is, is just saying, okay, look, I've got these specific times. How can I be intentional? And by the way, this is, this is well beyond parenting, right? For, for spouses, how are you being intentional to, to make time to have important conversations? Like you can't just live on autopilot and not talk. And that, that's for... Right here, that's for me and Rachel too, right? We need that. You have to sit down and say, look, we gotta have this conversation or we have to talk about this. Sometimes it's details. Like if we don't get these schedules right, like our life is gonna be a mess. But sometimes it's sitting down. Hey, can I tell you what I'm going through right now? What I feel, what I'm experiencing? Or can I tell you what God is teaching me? We have to have these intentional times. You need that with friends, you know, I, I, I am uh, an introvert, and so I don't really like to be around people a lot. But just even yesterday, I was at the Peretz house, and we were having a fantasy football draft, which is supposed to be like a father-son thing. And after like three rounds of drafting, it became, you know, a Dustin dad thing. Because Gabe's like, okay, you pick whoever you want to pick, dad. Got it. But just to be around other men and other kids to hang out, like we need that intentional time. Moses tells us we need that kind of time. Some of these things are going to be planned, right? That's what I just talked about. Meal time, bedtime, drive time, date night, those sorts of things. But also God uses spontaneous opportunities as well. Right, you might be thinking about, okay, how can I show God's love to my neighbor, but you never see your neighbor? And then just randomly, it just so happens that you pull into your driveway and who's out in their front yard? Your neighbor. And you're like, I gotta get inside. <laughs> and God's like, uh, hello. This, what you think is spontaneous, happens to be a providential moment that I'm putting before you. How about you do something with it? Right? We've, got to, we've got to be intentional with every single moment, whether they're planned or unplanned. These are the rhythms that God has placed before us. Again, Carrie Newhoff and Reggie Joyner say it like this. They say, this is how rhythm establishes value. Rhythm establishes value. Things that become part of the daily rhythm are the things that our families will come to believe are most important. Rhythm silently but significantly communicates value. Think about all the things that you do. Conversations with your kids, dates with your spouse, hanging out with your friends, random conversations with your neighbors. Those sorts of things communicate value. Value as to what you believe about them but also value as to what the other person, the relationship you're in, believes about them. One last quote from 
Carrie Newhoff and Reggie Joyner that I think gets at what we're talking about. To create a rhythm, you need to create priority. A priority is simply a pre-decision about your time. God has called you to steward the people he's entrusted you with. Do you know what that means? That means every person that he has given you is of value. Because every single person that he's given you is created in his image. And every single person deserves to experience his love. Which means how we prioritize them matters. Because it shows them how valued and loved they truly are. God has given you people to steward. How are you going to take those relationships and do something with them? I want you to think about just this simple question of who does God want your spouse to be? Who does God want your children to be? Maybe your friend. Or who does God want your coworker to be or that neighbor that you have or maybe that stranger you've never met? Who does God want them to be? And I want you to think about how God has placed you strategically in their lives to help them become the kind of person that God wants them to become. And the incredible thing about relationships is this, is that I think God then has placed them in your life to help you become the kind of person that God wants you to become. And the challenge for us is to begin to think very practically about, okay, what does this mean for my effort and my time? How can I be intentional with my effort? And how can I be intentional with my time? Some of us love to work. And if I were to look at your life, I would see so much intentional effort and intentional time placed in your work. Some of us love to have a good time. And if I looked at your life, I would see how much intentional effort and how much intentional time is placed on them. And I just want you to begin to think, is what would it look like for me to be as intentional with my relationships as I am with my work? Or how would it look like if I was as intentional with my relationships as I am with my fun? God has given us these people to steward. May we steward them in the Lord's best interest. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for every single gift you have given us, including people. Father, help us, give us wisdom to know how best to steward our spouse and our kids and our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our family and strangers you've put in our lives. God, may it not be about us, but may it be about what you want, what's in your best interest for them.
Help us to be intentional. Intentional effort. Intentional time. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining the Vintage Church NOLA podcast. If you're enjoying this content, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you next week.